Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, if you look, you can find reminders that the Second Amendment was forged, distressingly, with the aim of preserving slave patrol militias in the South. And that courts consistently interpreted it as meaning a collective right of the state. Only after a concerted, well-heeled effort was it read as ensuring individual rights to ownership of all kinds of guns. Which means that when media lazily point to Second Amendment rights, they're generally tacitly endorsing a particular interpretation. That the history around gun policy is a living history is important, because when U.S. news media move from reporting terrible incidents to hosting debate on policy responses, they can slide into an innervating picture of this country's unparalleled gun violence as lamentable but legal. So what are you going to do? They may as well reprint the Onion headline from years ago, No way to prevent this, says only nation where this happens. On this, as on a number of issues, many are simply fed up with the idea that change is too hard. Will media conversation shift to keep up with them? We'll talk with Igor Volsky, executive director of Guns Down America and author of Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns. Also on the show, we just marked the 18th anniversary of the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq, and U.S. corporate media could not care less. Iraqis still suffer from decades of war, sanctions, displacement, and disease. But so far out of U.S. media's range has the country fallen that when Biden bombed Syria on February 25th, it was reported as his first military action even though the U.S. carried out an airstrike in Iraq just days into Biden's term. Part of the reason media are comfortable putting Iraq in the rear view is that they're comfortable in the story they settled on, that the invasion and the war were all a tragic mistake. But lies don't become truth on repetition. We'll hear a bit of an early 2004 conversation with journalist Robert Dreyfus just to remind us of that. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Other countries have misogyny and racism, untreated mental illness and bar fights and robberies. What they don't have are weeks like that just passed, in which Americans, reeling from the murders of eight people in Atlanta, woke up to news of 10 people killed in Boulder. It's the guns. The difference is the guns. More and more people in this country seem ready right now to think big about responses to violent law enforcement, inadequate health care, and onerous student debt. Can we also shift the conversation and the political terrain on gun control? Here to help us think about that is Igor Volsky, executive director of the group Guns Down America and author of the book Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Igor Volsky. Thank you so much for having me. Well, when we hear about horrible things like the killing in Atlanta, in Boulder, and all of the places that we could name, 
there's a tendency, journalistic and maybe just human, to seek more information, more details. What were the circumstances, the motivations? Who is this individual? Somewhere along the way, one gets the sense that the problem of gun violence is too complicated to address. You know, whatever measure is being suggested wouldn't have prevented Atlanta, you know, and and that's somehow not a reason that it's not enough, but a reason to abandon the whole project. You know, I'm wondering, first of all, does pushing past that hopelessness call for a different way of thinking, new goals, or, or maybe just clarity about what our goals are? You're absolutely right. There's really this sense oftentimes in the press that this problem is just too hard, that we already have 400 million guns in circulation and there's nothing we can do about it, that we somehow have to pay the price of 100 people dying every day from gun violence because we have a Second Amendment. And the reality is that none of that is true, that we know exactly what needs to be done in order to save lives. And we know that because states across America have strengthened their gun laws, have invested in communities that are suffering from cyclical everyday gun violence, and have seen significant reductions in their gun suicide rates and in their gun homicide rates. So these models of democracy or these laboratories of democracy, as Republicans in particular often like to point to, really serve as an example of what we need to do on the national level in order to have a standard that fits the entire country. And secondly, we just need to look overseas at some of our great allies who have dramatically reduced gun violence by doing three basic things. By number one, ensuring that gun manufacturers and gun dealers are actually regulated and can't produce incredibly powerful weapons for the civilian market. Those countries raise the standard of gun ownership by requiring gun owners to register their firearm, to get a license, to have a firearm in the first place. And they've also addressed the root causes of gun violence, things like employment opportunities, housing security, health care. So we have the blueprint. We just need to follow it. Well, you will hear that assault weapon bans don't help because most murders happen with handguns or background checks don't help, you know, because there's a lot of resales and, and well, it's a lot of suicides. And But if you spell it out to the goal being fewer guns, if you make that the goal, well, then that addresses all of those things. And it sounds like what you're saying uh, has worked in other places. It has a goal of just there being fewer guns out there. Yeah, the reason why the United States has a death rate that's about 25% higher than our other peer nations is exactly what you just identified. We have way too many guns, and they are way too easy to get. And until our media and our leaders can have the courage, the political courage, to recognize that reality and to begin communicating about it to the American people, 
it's going to be a challenge to meet the goal of, of saving lives. And I have to say, we now have a president in the White House who has done this work before, who, when he was running for the presidency, released the boldest, one of the boldest gun violence prevention programs of any presidential candidate, who promised us that his experience in Washington, D.C. gave him the skills to work with Democrats and Republicans to get big things done. And so he has a heavy responsibility to follow through on those promises, to address the nation fully about this crisis, and then to work through Congress diligently and aggressively to get tighter gun laws across the finish line. Well, let me just bring you back to media for a second. When media tend to move from incident coverage to policy coverage, then then reporting on gun control gets often into this kind of static frame where you hear from, you know, opponents and proponents of a particular measure. They both get quoted. Sometimes they get quoted in equal amounts, you know. But there's this kind of backdrop, which is that in this country, any restrictions on individual gun ownership face an uphill battle because it's enshrined in the law, because the lobby is all-powerful, and because this country just loves its guns. These are presented as blanket impediments to change. But how true is that? Is that really an accurate current depiction of the lay of the land? Yeah, this false balance that you're identifying is that you often see in media stories this effort to perpetuate really what is a myth about the NRA's great power and abilities, and this notion of just regurgitating claims that the Second Amendment somehow impedes us from doing anything about this problem is a real hindrance, I think, to the kind of conversations we have publicly about this issue, to the kind of conversations we have with our friends and families, particularly if some of them are gun owners or more politicized gun owners. And, you know, the truth of the matter is the kind of coverage we need on this issue, the kind of press we need on this issue is one that reflects the science and the real history. The overwhelming science in the gun violence space tells us one simple truth. Where there are more guns, there are more gun deaths. And that's really it. That's the reality that you have to start from. So any kind of argument about if you have gun restrictions, you're disarming the good guys, or if you have gun restrictions, that means it will only harm the good guys because the bad guys will never follow it. That kind of argument that the NRA has so successfully gotten the press to parrot for decades is a real hindrance. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think we hopefully, hopefully have reached a point where gun violence is so ubiquitous and support for actually doing something is so widespread that we will hopefully see less of this effort to just pretend that, well, nothing at all is possible, right? And, and just a second on the, on the Second Amendment, you know, the, the history of this is, is very intriguing to me because for decades and decades and decades, really up to about 1972, it was hard to find anybody in the press 
or within even the the gun community who argued that the Second Amendment is somehow an impediment to gun regulation. That argument is actually quite new, and it was developed through NRA-funded researchers and NRA-funded lawyers. They birthed this idea that the Second Amendment somehow prevents us from doing what we know we need to do. And oftentimes, the media just parrots that invented notion without actually recognizing that it is certainly not what the Founding Fathers intended, but also doesn't reflect the reality of how most courts, the Supreme Court to some degree, but also courts across the country, have ruled repeatedly that the amendment allows for pretty significant regulation. And so, you know, my hope here is that we can have a different kind of conversation about this issue. That was one of the points that scholar Howard Friel made in an important piece for Extra for Fairs Magazine back in 1996, that media seem to feel they're charting some middle ground when they say, you know, there could allow for some restrictions on gun ownership. And the other point is, no, there should be no restrictions whatsoever. And they kind of chart a middle course. Mm -hmm. Friel's point is they're ignoring all of that legislative judiciary history that you just mentioned, you know, um, which actually says, no, there's no conflict between the Second Amendment and uh, some measures of gun control. Well, let me ask you finally, I know that at Guns Down, you know that legislation isn't all there is. You see it as a multi-front battle to get us to a a safer place with fewer guns. You talked about things that Biden could do. Is there particular legislation afoot that you see moving things forward? What in general do you see as roles for the public here? You know, where where can we uh, get involved in making change on this? Well, you know, we're constantly in this cycle of a gun event happens. Usually it's a mass shooting that grabs headlines. We all talk about, oh, things need to be done, right? We get a lot of press coverage, some of it good, some of it not, about that event. And then we all take a breath and we move on, usually in a matter of days, sometimes really in a matter of hours. And the question is, how do we break that cycle? And I think there are roles for the general public and there are roles for leadership, right? I think the president needs to actually lead the kind of enthusiasm and vigor and hard work that he and his administration put into passing the recovery plan. They need to apply to getting background checks across the finish line. They need to apply to getting an assault weapon ban across the finish line. Uh, They've shown what they can do when they're motivated and dedicated, and they need to do that. And to make sure that happens, all of us across the country have to keep the pressure on have to communicate in in any way we can, whether it be on social media or making calls or organizing friends and neighbors to do larger pushes to ensure that the president hears from us, politicians who've been talking about this issue for years who support reform but haven't actually pushed hard enough to follow it through, they need to hear from us. And then, of course, we need to, you know, also push those lawmakers who aren't there on the issue yet. But what I always think is 
to first identify what is the path to actually getting something done. To me, that's getting rid of the filibuster in the Senate and passing through the reforms I mentioned with a simple majority vote. And to move the individuals to target your advocacy at lawmakers and officials who actually have an incentive to listen to what you're saying and to make progress. And I suspect that many of the congressional members on the Republican side don't have any incentive to compromise on anything, no matter how popular it is in their home states or districts. So I would ask folks to be targeted in how they do this work, but I am confident that if all of this aligns, that if we have a president who's committed to acting as he promised and a public that is cheering him on and pushing him on, we will finally get to a place where we begin to make some serious progress on saving lives in this country. We've been speaking with Igor Volsky of the group Guns Down America. The book is Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns, out from the new press. Thank you so much, Igor Volsky, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. Human rights and anti-war advocates used the 18th anniversary of the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq to call for reparations to that country for not only that eight-year invasion and occupation in which U.S. forces and contractors committed all manner of atrocities, including massacres, rapes, and torture, but for some 30 years now of assault, including toxic weaponry that has devastated Iraq's economy, infrastructure, and the health and well-being of its people. U.S. media seem to have a not-our-problem approach toward Iraq today, in part because they count on the U.S. public to take their word that everyone at the time thought the invasion was justified because Iraq's weapons of mass destruction posed an imminent threat to the United States. That intelligence turned out to be wrong, sad to say, but you can't blame anyone for that. And have you heard? George W. Bush is a big softy who likes to paint. In February of 2004, Counterspin spoke with investigative journalist Robert Dreyfus about that pre-war intelligence on Iraq. Dreyfus co-authored an article called The Lie Factory for Mother Jones. Here's Robert Dreyfus talking with Counterspin's Steve Rendell in early 2004. Robert, when David Kay announced that he didn't think they'd find weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, he was adamant that the administration was misled by the CIA and that intelligence was not shaped or distorted by the Bush administration. Much of the media discussion followed that same line, but your article suggests that there's a lot more to the story. Tell us a little bit about what you found. Well, I think the most important thing is that while the CIA probably did not get very much right about Iraq. They were at least convinced, most of the intelligence agencies, that there was a lot of doubt, that there were a lot of things they didn't know. The doubts got completely erased in the policymaking circles. And in particular, the Pentagon, which set up its own little sort of rump intelligence unit called the Office of Special Plans under Douglas Fife at the Pentagon bureaucracy, not only was responsible for deleting these doubts, but they they had some value added too. They added in their own spin and their own intelligence. 
part of which came from Iraqi exiles, part of which came from their own staff, which was doing its own intelligence. And they created talking papers that ended up wildly exaggerating the threat that Iraq uh, allegedly posed to both the United States and to its neighbors. And that information went directly to Vice President Cheney's office and to the White House. And it led the administration in the direction of going to war because that was a war they already wanted. In other words, the idea that they were invading Iraq based on faulty intelligence has it exactly backwards. They had already decided they wanted to invade Iraq. So the intelligence was then used to justify a pre-existing policy. And for, so for Bush to argue or anyone else to argue that the administration went to war based on faulty intelligence is just plain silly. They would have gone to war in any case, but they were afraid to make the argument that Saddam Hussein is a a bad guy, and therefore for reasons of national strategy, for reasons of oil, for reasons of Middle East policy and protecting Israel, for all these reasons, we're going to invade Iraq. That probably wouldn't have sold either to the American public or to Congress. So instead, they picked on this Iraq is a threat argument. So, Robert Dreyfus, can I assume that the lie factory referred to in the title of your piece refers to this uh, internal Pentagon Office of Special Plans? Yeah, it started right after 9-11. Within a month of 9-11, they set this unit up. It wasn't called the Office of Special Plans then. It had a different name. It, it went from being something like two or three people, and it expanded and brought in contractors and, and consultants and eventually took the name Office of Special Plans, which incorporated this intelligence unit. That's what became basically the, the war planning office at the Pentagon. And from what you report, they pushed out analysts that weren't going along with the program to some degree. They really purged anybody who wasn't part of the zealous team of missionaries that believed in the war. These people were forced into retirement. They were transferred to other offices. Some of them just quit in disgust. And they brought in people, uh, ironically, who were not intelligence experts, people who were ideologues, but who were not particularly skilled at either intelligence collection or analysis. So what they did is they took these piles and piles of information with thousands of little data bits, and they picked out the ones that supported the case for going to war, and they discarded all the rest. And any intelligence conclusion is based on evaluating all of the information, a lot of which is going to be contradictory. Some of it's based on forged documents, on lies, on misinformation, on just plain old honest human mistakes. So all of that information, you know, isn't going to agree. And the job of an intelligence analyst or a professional is to look at it all and say, here's my conclusion and here's the reasons why my conclusion isn't 100%, so I give this a certain percent validity. Well, this office didn't do that at all. They just basically said, you know, we're gung-ho for war and Iraq is an enormous threat to American national security. And all of the junk that we heard about unmanned aerial vehicles striking the United States and Iraq building its nuclear program and importing WMD-related materials, all of that was a crock. 
Robert Dreyfus, at this point, it seems that some very good reporting has come out of mainstream media, particularly from the Washington Post. But some critics suggest that the Post hasn't pushed its reporting to the front page often enough. Even Washington Post ombudsman Michael Gettler wrote recently, quote, make sure you read page A17 or wherever the next piece of the puzzle appears, close quote. What do you think of the priority the media has given to this story so far? Well, I think it has gotten somewhat lost for, for two reasons. One is it got lost because the aftermath of the war was so catastrophically bad with an insurgency and a complete mess and a, a seemingly completely bumbling administration, U.S. administration over there that that's become the main story. And then second, it is sort of obvious that Bush and Cheney were saying WMD for months and months and months, and we got over there and they weren't there. So what else can you say except, well, we didn't find them and they were wrong. So I think they they sort of lost the handle on how to investigate the wrongdoing. I, I think the, the core of the problem is the media is unwilling to look at the government and say that there's conscious malfeasance happening. They They much prefer to say this was a mistake or this was just you know, incompetence or conflict of interest or all kinds of other things that are more, um, I guess, easier to swallow than to say that someone was out there deliberately manufacturing uh, evidence. I, I mean, one of the most obvious cases is no one has really investigated who forged those uranium documents. There's no argument that those documents were deliberately forged by someone. It wasn't a mistake. And finding out, you know, what we know about who forged them, and I, and I believe that somebody in the intelligence system here knows, is something that reporters ought to be just leaping into. And I, I don't see that too many people are even asking the question. And there are other questions like that that I think have just been ignored and in part you know, because reporters follow the official investigations. And now there have been several efforts by the Republicans in Congress to intimidate investigations and say, well, there's nothing there. The uh, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee has pretty much said that point blank. So I think to the extent that the official investigations are turning into cover-ups, then I think the media is finding it difficult to get these kind of more explosive charges onto the front page. That was Robert Dreyfus speaking with Counterspin Steve Rendell in February of 2004. The article, The Lie Factory, by Dreyfus and Jason Vest, can still be found on motherjones.com. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website. It's FAIR.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.